The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning once again, everyone. Very glad to have you here today. This is going to be the first in our Advent series of sermons. So that would be the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Uh, we do call it Advent season here uh, instead of Christmas season, mostly just because we think that it makes us sound like smarter or cooler. I assure you there's nothing wrong with calling it Christmas. Uh, it's maybe like a slightly Catholic terminology, Christ's Mass. Uh, Advent simply is just a word that means coming or approach or arrival. And so the Advent season is the season of the arrival of Jesus. And although he was almost certainly not born on December 25th or even in the winter at all, it is a fine day to commemorate that. Uh, it's fine if you want to say Christmas. It's fine if you don't. It's also fine if other people don't call it Christmas. These are all things we don't need to be worked up about. But we will call it our Advent series here today this being the first of four. So as a brief introduction to the whole series, in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we have the most comprehensive account of the, the events leading up to and then the birth itself of Jesus. Luke, uh, in his Gospel, Luke is a, a bit of a historian. He was uh, trained as a doctor, but well-read and well-written. So he did a lot of research and got a lot of detail and did a lot of eyewitness interviews. And so he has the most historical detail of all the Gospels. And so we find uh, within Luke a few events that are not recorded in the other Gospels. In particular, in these first two chapters of Luke, for this Advent series, we will be covering four songs which we encounter there. Uh, Zechariah's song, Mary's song, the song of the shepherds and angels, and then lastly, the song of Simeon. Uh, and so, in fact, Mary's song does actually come first in the Gospel of Luke, but this sermon will be about the song of Zechariah uh, because the story of Zechariah starts first. The first chapter kind of goes back and forth between Zechariah and Mary because there's a lot of parallels and similarities between those two stories. And so, both in terms of timeline and in terms of kind of the narrative effect of the story, it's helpful to see the parallels. But our story begins, the Gospel of Luke begins with Zechariah uh, first, and so that is where we will begin. As a brief bit of background to the Gospel of Luke, I'll read the first couple of verses as Luke himself introduces the purpose and the nature of his work. He says in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." So that's a bit of a mouthful, a typical sort of doctory, historian-y way to start off your Gospel. But what Luke is saying is, these things that have happened, I'm trying to write them all down as much as it's possible to write all of them down. He will later make a comment at the end saying that it is certainly not possible to write down all of these things. But, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke says that this is a book of history, a recording of the things which have happened as the eyewitnesses have seen them happen, so that the reader may have assurance that these things have happened the way they have been recorded. And so our main text today is at the very end of this long first chapter of Luke, but I did want to start back here anyway because one of the major applications that I want to draw from our main text today is actually the same as the purpose of the entire Gospel of Luke, which is that we remember what God has already done in order that we can trust what He says He will do. 
So Luke's history is detailed, as he promises it will be, and therefore starts prior to the birth of Jesus. Luke wants to make a strong case for Jesus' life and the, the stories, the reports, the accounts surrounding Jesus' life that they are true. He wants to show historically with evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, which is a word that means the Savior of the people. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament that there will come a Messiah, and there are prophecies that there will come a messenger or a herald before the Messiah. And so Luke then needs to begin with the messenger. So let me read to you a prophecy from Malachi 4. And I just want you to try to hold this in your mind as we continue, and hopefully you will see how this prophecy is very strongly and very clearly fulfilled by the account that Luke gives. It's from Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So again, try to hold that in your mind for a few more minutes as we proceed. So now let's begin into the narrative proper of Zechariah. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Luke, of course, provides good historical context, saying what time this event took place. This helps to teach us that we should consider the historical reality when we read the Bible. These events contained within happened in a real time and a place, and that time and place matters. So we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and in short, Luke says that these were very good people, righteous and upstanding, from very good families, a long line of priests on both sides of the marriage. They're impressive, admirable, God-fearing people. And yet, we also see that they have a, a, a deep lack in their lives, for Elizabeth has borne no children. Now, barrenness or childlessness is painful and frustrating and disappointing in any time and place, but in particular, in this context, it was also probably shameful. The people around Elizabeth considered children a blessing from God correctly, but it was also typical of the Hebrew culture to infer that a lack of children represented some sort of spiritual lack, as if God were withholding the blessing of children from the undeserving. We know that this is not commensurate with God's character. He, in fact, loves to deliver his promised children specifically through those who seemingly cannot have children, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and now Elizabeth, and soon Mary, but culturally, and therefore probably in their minds, their lack of children would have been the dominant point of distress and perceived failure for Zechariah and Elizabeth in an otherwise admirable and successful life. It's worth remembering here that God's grace and faithful service to him neither exempt anyone from earthly troubles. So we will consider Zechariah's response and our response to such troubles as we continue. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
So each division of the priests would take a rotation performing the temple duties, which had to be performed every day and, uh, or twice a day and more often during certain feast and ceremonial times. So Zechariah is chosen by lot to enter the temple and offer prayers, which means at random. We, of course, know that at random really means specifically by the hand of God. But they would, they would use some sort of randomized process to determine out of this division which priest specifically would be on duty today. So due to the number of priests that we know existed at this time in history, it is extremely likely that Zechariah had never before been chosen for this duty and would never be chosen again. There were some 18,000 priests serving the Hebrew people at this time. And so this is probably the singular, most spiritually significant moment of Zechariah's life. And uh, as, insofar as these things go, probably the apex of his career, if you could call it that. This is the, the peak of his personal history. His whole life has been leading up to this, and he will remember this day for the rest of his life. But if only he had a son, his life would be very, very full right now. So the priest's duty at this time was to take some of the hot coals left over from the burning of the sacrifice outside and carry them into the temple. He would go right up to the curtain that covered the Holy of Holies, which is the place where God's presence dwelled on earth. It was a curtain separating it. The inside contained God's presence. The outside contained everything else. And only once per year, the high priest would enter that holiest place to, prevent a, to present a sacrifice for all of God's people. But besides that, even priests strictly stayed on the outside of the curtain. So Zechariah would obediently perform his priestly responsibilities. Coming close to the curtain, he would light the incense. And then as the pleasant aroma of the incense drifted upward, he would offer a prayer for God's people which symbolically joins the incense as it travels to God, pleasing him. And all of the people who attended the temple that day are outside, having offered their sacrifices and now offering their prayers, and they are waiting for Zechariah to come out and proclaim a blessing over them. So we rejoin Zechariah inside the temple. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. So first of all, a brief tangent, and this is going to come up again throughout the rest of this series, which is why I'm taking a moment to talk about it. Zechariah was not fearful because he wasn't expecting someone to be in the temple with him. He wasn't. But the word that you would use for that reaction would be startled. Oh, there's someone there. This word was afraid. Zechariah was afraid because the angel was scary. I can tell you later, if you would like, about why angels have become, come to be portrayed as winged babies and choir girls, but I promise you that that is not what they look like. Angels are members of God's army. Anytime in Scripture that angels are not either worshiping God at His throne or delivering messages, the only other thing that angels do is fight and kill God's enemies. So there's a lot of information out there about different like types and ranks of angels, and most of it is apocryphal, mythological nonsense. The Bible does tell us a little bit about what angels look like and do, and again, happy to tell you more about that later. But Scripture is very clear. Angels are frightening. So, of course, the angel then needs to say to Zechariah, do not be afraid. This is the same thing that God told Abram when Abram feared God's presence. This is the same thing that Moses told Israel when they feared God's presence at Mount Sinai. This is the same thing that God told Gideon when Gideon was afraid to go to war. Zechariah is a noteworthy priest and old on top of that, and so I am certain that he was very familiar with the scriptures, very familiar with these words. Perhaps in the intensity of the moment it was difficult for him to recall, but if he knows his Bible, which he surely does, 
he should know that a messenger from God who comes and says, do not be afraid, is about to deliver a word, a prophecy from the Lord. And so the angel does. He says, do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the Lord is going to give Zechariah a son. And not only will this child bring great joy to him and Elizabeth, as all children do, but this child will bring joy to many. He will be great before the Lord. Can you imagine if God promised you such a thing? I pray for my sons every night that they would love God and serve him, but to have God himself assure me in prophecy that this would be the case would bring me the greatest joy imaginable. This instruction that the angel gives about not drinking alcohol is similar to the vow taken by someone who would take a, um, who would take a vow to be a Nazarite, and that was a way that an Israelite could set themselves apart for service to God for some time. And so this implication then is that this child, who should not drink alcohol ever, will be set apart for service to God forever. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb. And we will see soon after that this comes true, because John, from inside Elizabeth, recognizes Jesus inside Mary. And it's worthwhile at this moment as well to, re <clears throat> to remember that children can be regenerated. In other words, very young children can be saved. In fact, children even in the womb could be come upon by the Holy Spirit, which is the way that all of us come to salvation. This is not guaranteed to be true, except for in the case of you know, a specific prophetic word delivered from a messenger of God directly to you about your child, but we should not treat our children as if they are incapable of having faith in God until they reach a certain age. It may be difficult to tell, the signs, the outward credibility of that faith may be different depending on their age and their capabilities, but we should treat them as if they are, if they are able to sin, they are also able to be saved. But returning to Zechariah, the most potent, the most prominent words in Zechariah's ears must have been that final sentence. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Zechariah knows his Bible. He knows Malachi's prophecy that I read earlier. He knows that the Hebrew people, that his people were awaiting a Messiah. And he knows that before that Messiah comes would come a messenger in the way of Elijah. Zechariah's son is going to be one of the most significant people in all of Israel's history. The honor is unimaginable. And Zechariah surely knows this. But hear his response. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am old, and my wife is advanced in years. The plain English does not necessarily capture the tone of these words, but Zechariah is skeptical, or maybe even unbelieving. He's essentially saying, Well, I'm going to need some proof, because I don't think that this is possible. And again, as a student of the Bible, he should surely know of Isaac and Jacob and Samuel, all miraculous births that were required, for God's promises to come true. But 
Also, like many before him, he asks for a sign. How can I trust you? How can I know that this will be the case? And let's remember, don't think that Zechariah was a wicked man or a faithless man. He was a believer. He trusted God with his life and his vocation. He was an upright and upstanding man. And with his doubt, he merely joined the ranks of Abraham and Moses and Gideon and countless others as those who believed in God, even with saving faith, and yet still found themselves skeptical of God about maybe this one thing. And surely that describes many of us here today. But the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. In the simplest terms, the angel says, who do you think you're talking to? What proof do you need? He looks so divine that Zechariah is afraid of him. He quotes scripture, delivering a message directly from God. What more of a sign do you want? And so when he introduces himself then as Gabriel, Zechariah must have surely been embarrassed because he would doubtless remember that Gabriel was the angel who delivered a prophecy to Daniel. But Zechariah will also remember that Daniel's faith was immediate and without doubt. And so with more than a little irony, Gabriel indeed does give Zechariah a sign. You want a sign? Here is your sign. And this sign also comes with a little bit of discipline. Zechariah, you will be rendered mute. And we find later, based on the reaction of the people to Zechariah, we think he was also deaf until these things come to pass. So hopefully, through this lesson, Zechariah's doubts will be satisfied, and perhaps he will even learn something in the process. So the people outside were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he must have seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went back to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me, to take away my reproach among people. So we see these prophecies beginning to come true. We now turn in the narrative to Mary, who receives somewhat similar news. Next week's sermon is going to focus on Mary and her prophecy and her song. But for today, we will skip ahead until we meet back up with Zechariah. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called by this name. So they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. So at this point, we can see the prophecy has come to pass exactly as it is written. Elizabeth immediately had faith, saying that the Lord has delivered her. Zechariah's faith came more slowly, but look at the difference in the way Zechariah acts now versus the way he acted back in the temple. Zechariah says, his name is John. I'm not telling you it's going to be John. It's done. The prophecy says his name will be John. Therefore, his name is John. And they all wondered, it says, all the people around him, they all wondered. And immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, 
what will this child be? For the hand of God was with him. So exactly as God promised, it has come to pass. The rest of the sermon today will be about Zechariah's response to the birth of his son. When John was born and Zechariah's mouth was opened, he sings a song to God. So Zechariah's story and his song are ones of waiting and remembering and trusting. In the very first words out of Zechariah's mouth, as soon as he can speak, we see that his faith has been changed and firmly established. Just the first two lines. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. For months now, Zechariah has been unable to speak, and yet he has steadily seen God's promises fulfilled. Gabriel's sign of muteness reminds him that God's words are trustworthy. God's messengers are trustworthy. God's prophecies are trustworthy. And then he soon after learns that Elizabeth is pregnant. God is trustworthy. John recognizes Jesus in the womb, leaping with joy inside Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, just as God foretold. God is trustworthy. John is born, and let's note that another week goes by and Zechariah is still mute because it is not until John is named as God has commanded, when Zechariah acts out his newfound faith, that Zechariah, just as was foretold, can now speak. God is trustworthy. And so now, instead of responding with a lack of faith, with skepticism, Zechariah responds correctly. John, newly born, Jesus is not even born yet, and Jesus has certainly not done any of the work necessary to save his people, and yet Zechariah says, in the past tense, as if it has already happened, God has visited and redeemed his people. Again, Zechariah, knowing his Bible, this is how the prophets speak, declaring God's promises as if they were deeds already completed, because they were. If God has promised it, it is done because God is trustworthy. From our perspective, at this point in the narrative, God will visit his people when Jesus is born and then when Jesus dies, he will redeem them. But from God's perspective and from Zechariah's perspective with his now corrected faith, God has done. He has visited and has redeemed his people because he promised that he would. So Zechariah's song is about promises God has made to his people and reasons why we can trust him to come through and the promises that he still does make. So let's read the rest of Zechariah's song now. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah knows that the promised one is coming. He gets it now. His son John will be the messenger and the one whom John heralds will be the salvation that God has promised all these years. This is it. Right now it's happening. And so Zechariah's song, as I mentioned before, I think contains two key truths. First, Zechariah looks backward at God's promises, those very promises that are being fulfilled in Zechariah's life right this moment. 
He sees how God has come through over and over again, and he, so therefore he knows that God is trustworthy. And then second, he looks to God's future promises. And since God is trustworthy, he is certain that God will continue to uphold these things he has promised to do. So first, let us look at how God has done what he has promised until now. This whole song of Zechariah has strong overtones of Psalm 132 in which God promises to David, swearing an oath, that one of David's line would sit on the throne forever. It says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And then continuing on further along in the psalm, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And Zechariah sees that his own son, John, is the messenger that will foretell of this one. This is the Savior that God has promised, which is why Zechariah now says, remembering God's promise and seeing how it has been fulfilled, God has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation from us in the house of his servant David. Long has a king been promised from the house of David. God promised David that someone from his line would sit upon the throne forever and bring salvation to God's people. And so Zechariah sees that this is coming to pass. And he knows that God will make good on his promise, for it's happening right now. Mary, pregnant with Jesus, had been visiting with Elizabeth for some months now. And John, from inside Elizabeth, rec uh, recognized Jesus' presence and responded to it. And Zechariah surely knows of this. And Zechariah probably also, because of the importance of genealogy in that culture, he probably also knows that Mary and Joseph are both descended from the house of David, which means that this child, Jesus, is a perfect candidate to fulfill God's promise of a Messiah. With what Gabriel promised to Zechariah, it all starts to add up. This really is the promised Savior that Mary is carrying, and Zechariah's son that Elizabeth is carrying really is the herald of that Messiah. God is trustworthy. Zechariah continues, he says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. You can hear again the similarities to Psalm 132. God will save his people from their enemies. And Zechariah appeals not only to Psalm 132, but to all the prophets of old. Just as he has received a prophecy that came to pass exactly as God said it would, there are many more examples in Israel's history where God promises mercy to their fathers, and so it comes to pass. The promise to David in 1 Chronicles 17, the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, meaning he will die, I will raise up your offering after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. And David may have thought that that was Solomon, Solomon, David's son, building a temple for God, but that temple did not stand forever. Rather, this is referring to Jesus one of the line of David who will come and establish a new temple in his body forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This Messiah is also prophesied in Isaiah 9, perhaps familiar during this time of year. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And again in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Sounds familiar. Zechariah knows these prophecies. He knows that they're coming true. He sees that God is holding up his promises. Jeremiah 23 foretells, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Savior is prophesied in Zechariah 2. It's a different Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. You hear these words, dwell from the house of David. Salvation is coming. Zechariah remembers these promises. Unlike before when he was in the temple and he disbelieved despite the evidence of Gabriel, today he remembers God's promises and sees how they are coming to pass. He continues in his song, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Not only did the prophets of old foretell of this Savior, but even back to Abraham, the father of all of Israel, God promised a Savior. If you were here, you may remember from our series in Genesis earlier this year that God made a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is a promise that is guaranteed to be fulfilled regardless of whether or not the other party upholds their end of the bargain. And so as part of this covenant that God made with Abraham, God promised Abraham land, which he received, and seed, many children, which he received, and a blessing. And that blessing, God promises that all nations will be blessed by the seed of Abraham. God says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies... And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, blessed because you have obeyed my voice. All your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Not all your offspring, your one offspring, his enemies. And in your one offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Zechariah's song, it calls back to what Gabriel said. It calls back to what the prophets foretold. It calls all the way back to Abraham. Do you remember when God promised to give Abraham an offspring who will have victory over his enemies and bless all the nations. Zechariah says, this is it. My son is to go before this one. The promised offspring of Abraham has arrived. History was incredibly important to the Hebrew people. Like us, they were a people of the word. They kept careful track of their history and their genealogies because where they came from and what God had promised to them was incredibly important. And this is what Zechariah is remembering. All of God's history, all of his promises with his people are culminating in this moment. His prophecies are coming true. And now, Zechariah, with his renewed faith, he knows, of course, they would come true. God has always been faithful with his people. Before his people even existed as a people with Abraham, God was faithful to Abraham and made them into a people. When they were downtrodden, God was faithful and gave their enemies over to them. God was faithful to King David. He made him promises. He upheld those promises. And now Zechariah has a chance to join that long line of those to whom God has been faithful. To tell God's people of the Savior that is coming. 
So this is the first main point of Zechariah's song, the first way in which his faith has been increased. So let's, let's retrace his steps so far. Zechariah is a man of God. He believes in God and he knows. He believes the prophecies. He knows the prophecies. As a priest, he especially knew the prophecies. But on this one particular matter in his life, this one painful issue, he doesn't believe. He has no child. How can it be that God will be faithful even in this one part of my life? He has the history. He has the evidence. He has all of the promises made and kept thus far, but he's not sure about the next one. And friends, you must realize that this is perfectly normal. Not normal as inexcusable, normal as in common. It doesn't mean that Zechariah is an evil person. It doesn't mean he does not believe in God. It doesn't mean that his faith is nothing. It means that his faith is not fully formed. Zechariah had faith in God. Luke said he was a righteous and upright man. But there were areas of his life where he did not trust God. And in particular, with his childlessness. We all have weaknesses in our faith. So let us learn then from Zechariah's example and his prophetic song. Let's follow along with him in his journey of faith and in his song. He tells us why we can trust God. He has learned, Zechariah has learned, this is why I can trust God. So let's remind ourselves, like Zechariah did, why God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy because he has been faithful so far. He has always fulfilled his promises like he said he would. God is unchanging. He has made a covenant with Abraham. He has made a covenant with us. We know that God is trustworthy because his covenant, regardless of our performance, his covenant is always going to be upheld. And just like Abraham had a sign of that covenant to remind him that God is not going to back down from that covenant, so do we. We have signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper every week. It's a sign of God's covenant. It's a reminder. It doesn't, it doesn't make God's covenant more true. It isn't us upholding our end of the contract. It's a reminder that like every covenant God makes, like every promise God foretells, He will do it. So this new covenant in the blood of Jesus is a certain sign that God's promises to us will be true. And we can trust God because we know Him. God is our Father. I trust my Father. No offense to yours, I don't trust Him like I trust my Father because I don't know the guy. And, you know, if you don't trust your Father, it's because you know Him. People that we know we can trust. And like Zechariah has come to know God in a different way, when we come to know God, we come to trust Him. So now let's turn to the second main theme of Zechariah's song. First, he recalled all the promises that God has made and kept, and now he tells of the promises God has yet made and will surely keep. But this time, there's no doubt. Zechariah has been shown again by the birth of his son how God is always faithful to keep his promises. And so he now turns to promises that have not yet been fulfilled, but he praises God for them anyway because he knows that they will come to pass. <clears throat> so he continues, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. God promised in many places that we've read already and here deliverance from our enemies. But were the people of Israel delivered from their enemies when Jesus was born or when Jesus died? Are we delivered from all of our enemies? Not yet. Call back to the Psalms again. We see that some prophecies are coming true even in Zechariah's life, but some are not yet manifested. Here, Zechariah is speaking of God's kingdom, his final kingdom. 
where we will finally serve without any fear, without any enemies, and in complete holiness and righteousness for all of our days. Friends, if you look around the world today, you surely must recognize that as long as there are different kinds of people who believe in different things and have what we would maybe call today different worldviews or different values, there's no peace. Eventually, they crash into each other, either in war or political strife or just divisions among people. There cannot be peace until everyone is subject to one authority. Everyone is subject to the same justice. And that will come when Jesus returns, not to suffer as he did in Zechariah's day, but to conquer. Matthew 25, Jesus promises of himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, he will subject all of the nations under him. He will be the king over all the earth. And that will finally bring peace, the war to end all wars. And at that time, he will say to all people, either come you who are blessed or go you who are cursed. But fortunately, Zechariah and God do not finish here. Zechariah says that God will show mercy on us and forgive our sins. He sings, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. John, Zechariah's son, is going to come to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. John was coming to give this knowledge. Jesus was coming to give the forgiveness. And friends, now he has come. We're so privileged to live in a time when we have that work accomplished. These saints, these fathers of old, all of these prophets and all of these righteous men that we read about in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, they had God's promise, but it was a promise with no name. And that's more than enough. God's character is trustworthy. But we have the man himself, Jesus, documented historically by men like Luke with a full life and his death and his resurrection that have accomplished and proven God's mercy. We have a seal on that promise which God makes to us that Zacharias probably never saw. He was already old when Jesus was born and Jesus died when he was 30. Zechariah probably never got to see this happen. But we have the seal of Christ's blood to assure us that what God has promised, he will perform. So even though Jesus is going to come again, as God promised, to conquer all and cast out the unrighteous from his presence, we also know that he has come to give mercy and that he will grant that mercy to those who believe in him. And Zechariah's song concludes that God will give light to those in darkness and guide our feet in the way of peace. In scripture, the darkness, it can refer to oppression, it can refer to subjugation, it can refer to the world around us, but it, it often refers to our sin. The darkness that we bring upon ourselves, the blindness that we use to cloud our own vision. And God has promised light. God has promised to reveal through his word and through his son, through his prophets, to reveal that sin to us, 
to shine the light into the darkness that we might see where God is. And he will guide our feet in the way of peace. And so in the, in the context that we've read from this song, based on the, the prophecies that Zechariah is foretelling, peace is such a, an all-encompassing concept. It certainly means peace from, from turmoil, emotional distress, or anxieties, or fears here on earth. But more than that, we know that Jesus is coming to bring peace in the form of killing his enemies so that there's no one left to make war. We will be guided in that way of peace by the light in our darkness that will come through the one whom John foretells, Jesus. So friends, let me get practical. Last week, if you were here for that sermon, we saw in Philippians how the things upon which you think become the things which you practice. And so how might we think on and practice these things? Let's see what Zechariah has done. What things does he think upon that his faith might be changed? He remembers what God has done so that he knows that God is trustworthy. He remembers what God has done so that he knows God is trustworthy. I've given many examples, many different places in Scripture where we see God promising to do things and then where we see those promises fulfilled We can remember those things. And especially in this Advent season, we see so many things that God has promised and we see them fulfilled, assuring us that God is trustworthy. Another thing that maybe is not made explicit in the text but that is worth learning from Zechariah is that when we have that weakness of faith in those areas where, like Zechariah, even if we believe in God, we don't necessarily believe God, we might learn to speak less. Zechariah did not have a choice, which was a curse, but really a blessing. We see a similar story with Abraham and Job. When they ask questions of God, they tend to get rebuked. But when they stop asking questions and start trusting God, he is gracious and generous with them and shows his trustworthiness. So like Zechariah, let us maybe speak less when we are questioning God. That is against the spirit of the age because we want answers to all of our questions. The most common objections, as it were, to Christianity is, well, how can this be true? Or how could God do this if he's good? Or we we demand these questions because we have these, these gaps in our faith. The unbeliever has these huge gaps in his faith where there's this nagging question and we can't We can't get an answer for it, and and so we tell ourselves, well, if I could find an answer to this question, that would satisfy me, and then then I would trust God. The thing is, we see in God's Word over and over again with Zechariah, with Abraham, with Job, everywhere, we see that God does give us answers to many questions, but He also gives us the right questions to ask. See, some things are simply not ours to know. That's kind of the point of faith, of belief, is that we recognize I don't, I don't get to have the evidence for this. Friends, we have a lot of evidence for Jesus, actually. The historical documentation is remarkable, but we can't know everything. We can't prove everything. We weren't there. And there are questions that bother us about our own lives that you're just never going to get an answer to. But you can know that what God has given you, what is in Scripture, the promises that He has made to you, He promises that they are sufficient. So if there is something that you don't know and you can't know and you can't get an answer to, 
Perhaps that is God saying, this is something that you don't need an answer to. There is room in faith for questions, but there is also a time in faith to stop questioning. Now, Zechariah also, during his nine months of muteness and probably also deafness, I'm guessing he had a lot of time to pray. It is not wrong to ask for more faith. Ask God to teach you a lesson like he taught Zechariah. Ask God, say, God, I don't believe. Make me believe more. Jesus' disciples, later in Luke, standing right there face to face with Jesus, the Messiah himself, said, Jesus, will you please give us more faith? We're having trouble believing you. You will join good company to ask God to give you more faith. And friends, the last very practical thing that you can do that that coincides with all that we've said and is especially a very effective way to think on the promises of God is to sing. Songs stay in your head. Zechariah sings, even though when translated into English without any music, it doesn't necessarily seem like a song. He sings a song. Maybe this song burst out of his mouth right at that moment through the movement of the Holy Spirit, but maybe he spent those nine months writing it and meditating on these words. See, good songs, and we try to pick good songs here, and I'm not saying that songs that don't fit this criteria are bad, but good biblical songs, they tend to follow this pattern where they move from past fulfillment to future promises. That's why it's such a tragedy in Baptist churches, a lot of times they'll sing, you know, verses 1, 2, and 4, or something like that. that. That third verse, the writer of the hymn had a purpose. The hymn moves from one place to another. And we can see that in some of our songs, just a few examples. He will hold me fast. The second verse says, He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. The final verse says, Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. And the song that we're about to sing now, Come Behold, The Wondrous Mystery. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. But the song ends, Christ in power, resurrected, as we will be when he comes. Remember the promises of God so that you know you can trust him for the promises to come. Please pray with me, and then we'll sing. Father, thank you that you are trustworthy. Thank you for your promises to us. God, even thank you for those questions that we don't have answers to. You know us better than we know ourselves. You are a good father who doesn't give us more than we need or more than we can handle. And so those gaps that we have, those questions that we have, those areas where our faith is weak, where we don't trust you, even those who believe in you, please grant us peace. Please grant us faith. A quiet faith like Zachariah learned. Not a skeptical faith like he had at the beginning, but after he has spent those many months in silence meditating on you and your prophecies and your promises, that new faith that he had is what we desire. That faith that is certain because he knows that you are trustworthy. But you are trustworthy. Let us act as if you were. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to the cross I cling Naked come to thee for dress Helpless look to thee for grace 
All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see the old judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Rock of ages, cleft.